Welcome to Park Media. I'm your host today, Vince Emanuele, and we are joined by Michael Albert, who's been a political activist and radical publisher and author for his entire adult life, schooled in the 1960s. He was highly active at MIT in the Boston-Cambridge area, as well as nationally. He later helped found the U.S. book publisher South End Press, the monthly periodical Z Magazine, and the Z Media Institute, the noted international website ZNet, that's www.zcom.org, and numerous other projects. Author of over 20 books and hundreds of articles, teacher, organizer, and innovator, Albert is perhaps best known as co-creator with Robin Hannell of the economic vision called Participatory Economics. Albert is also the host of a podcast called Revolution Z and a member of the collective writing group, Collective 20. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. All right, let's start by talking a little bit about who you are, where you grew up, how you got involved with politics. I know your bio mentioned that you went to MIT, and I know there's an interesting history there as well. So tell us a little bit about this. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know where to begin, and I don't know what's relevant. Um, well, did you I come from a political family? family? No. Okay. My father was a lawyer corporate lawyer. My mother was a school teacher. They were both liberal, um, although I was relatively unaware of it at the time. Didn't mean much to me, but they were. And uh, But there was no particular political focus, even at the level of, you know, electoral politics in the United States, uh, much less anything radical. No. Uh, I so you know, I became politicized by the world around me, not by my parents. Where where were you growing up at the time? I was, I, I grew up, I was born in New York, but I, um, at a very young age, they moved to New Rochelle, which is a suburb of New York. Um, and that's where I grew up. Uh, in a nice big house, very comfortable circumstances, uh, there were five of us, parents, brother and sister. Um, and I, uh, you know, I had a very pleasant, uh, fulfilling childhood, I guess you could say. What, uh, so there was no trauma of any kind in my early life. What kind of uh, conditions were taking place? This is the early to mid-60s. You're now a teenager, must have graduated high school in what, early 1960s? Well, I was in the class of 69 in college, so I guess 64 okay. or 65, something like that. Okay. And at that I time... Backwards, 69, 68, 68, 67, 67, <laughs> 65. I must have graduated in 65. Right on. Yeah. Did, uh, were there people active in your high school at no. the time? Okay. No. Although, um, do you know the name Schwerner, Cheney, and Goodman? No. They were three activists who went south it's a famous historical case um and one of them was from neurochelle uh, but i didn't know him. uh and uh, uh neither did anybody in the family uh, and it was not you know i didn't even know about it until later so yeah so no so your politics start when you get to university a little before i suppose in high school actually i would Honestly, I would say my politics start with Bob Dylan, um, uh, who had a big impact on me and who, whose words, 
you know, opened me up a lot. Um, and uh, because I was into physics and math, I, I would have become a physicist if there was no Vietnam War and all the rest of it. And uh, uh, Dylan's listening to Dylan and then trying hard to discern the words and then thinking about them, which for me was nothing normal, right? In other words, I was into physics and math. I wasn't, uh, you know, I read a lot, but it was mysteries or whatever, science books. Um, so I wasn't sort of a culturally attuned fellow by any means, but I did get into him. Uh, and also the rest of the music of the time, but that wasn't as, well, actually, I guess it was. It was all consequential. Uh, and you go, so you end up in MIT in 66 studying physics. What is this like? I mean, it's a hell of an accomplishment to get into MIT. Um, you don't think... <laughs> It's, You're like, yeah, I don't give a shit. <laughs> no, well, I mean, the truth is, I uh, I don't know whether this is of any consequence at all, but I'll ask you answer your question. So, um, the truth is, in high school, I, I I applied to a bunch of schools. In those days, you did you applied to a bunch of schools, but I was very good student um, and had you know very good grades, and I was also not a great athlete, but a bit of an athlete and a you know, it was all around type. And uh, I applied to a number of places, and a number of them involved sort of amusing stories. So I applied to Princeton. When I went to Princeton to uh, get an interview, I hated the place. It was raining. I think that was part of the problem. I just didn't like the place. But I had a little extra time, so I went to the gym because I was hoping to see Bill Bradley, who was playing at Princeton at the time, and for those who don't know, Bill Bradley at the time was considered to be arguably the best college basketball player ever. He was incredible. Um, he wasn't Michael Jordan in the pros, but in college he was incredible. And uh, so I went into the gym, but I had never seen the guy. And I'm sitting on the floor in the gym, and you know, slowly but surely the team is coming out. And this guy comes out, and he's terrific. You know, and I'm really impressed, and I'm watching him, and I'm enjoying watching him. And then another guy comes out, and the second guy was Bradley. The first guy also played in the pros, so I wasn't off the wall and thinking that he was really, really good. But the second guy was ludicrous, um, and they played one on one some, and you know, and I just came away from it astounded at the, you know, the 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 range of talent and skill that humans exhibit. I mean, this first guy blew me away. And then the second guy blew the first guy away. So that was an interesting experience having to do with college admissions. Didn't have anything, much. I never went there, but. Um, and I, uh, you know, I got into the, every other school I applied to except Harvard, where I was rejected. And that was the one I wanted to go to. I wanted to go there because I had a friend there, a very good friend. Uh, from high school. But in my year, two other people got the slots and I didn't get the slots. So I got into MIT and I wanted to go to Cambridge and that's where I went. Um, what was it like when you got there? I mean, was the campus active? Was the local community active? This is at the height of the civil rights movement. You've got Vietnam War. Um, it's early. It's 64, I think. I remember I told you I had to calculate. I think it was 65. Okay. Um, uh, it, it, it's a long story. I don't know whether you want to hear this. It is the first politicizing event, you know, seriously politicizing event as compared to 
deciphering Dylan in my head, right, um, that I experienced. I, MIT had about a third of the students on the campus living in fraternities at the time. And basically, they were the more outgoing and social people, or at least that was the way it was portrayed. Um, but the MIT fraternities weren't like fraternities at some colleges. Um, they were uh, they were incredibly competitive, and they were they had focuses. So a particular fraternity might have a sort of an academic focus, and another one might have a sort of a uh, athletic focus, but that didn't mean it wasn't doing academics. It just means it meant that on top of it, it was doing, and so on. And uh, they were so competitive with each other that they recruited you, you know, so you're, you're, you're graduating from high school. So it's the summer of after you're graduating from high school and they're off recruiting. So they're sending their fraternity brothers around the country, recruiting from the incoming class, the people who they want. So I was recruited by a number of fraternities, and, and in one case, I became good friends with an upper-class fraternity guy. So here I was. I mean, you know, this, this I'm not in college yet, and this guy who's a, I guess he was a junior at the time, is becoming my friend and going to the beach with me and all the rest of it and telling me all these stories about Cambridge and about, you know, so it was, uh, it did what it was supposed to do. Right, I, I became engaged with the guy and, and involved and so on. And uh, then you go up to, to school and you go through rush week, which is, you know, they're, they're trying to pick students. So they've got a number of them that they've already picked. For instance, me, they know they want me. They're competing with other fraternities to get me. So they're trying to convince me to come to them, not the other way around. And that's true for a number, a considerable number of the people who they're going to take. And then there are other people who are trying to get in, you know, who are trying to sort of travel around the campus. So during rush week, you don't know what's going on, really. It's very fast. It's very hectic. And you see what you're supposed to see. You see what they're showing you. So I joined. I became a brother at MIT, at AEPI. And uh, so my friends were there. And it was very supportive, incredibly supportive. If anybody was having trouble, they would get help. You know, it was, it was an incredibly supportive living environment. So it was positive in many ways. Um, and so it goes from, you know, when you're first going there, I guess September or something, to I guess January, or maybe it was February, I don't remember, this is 50 years ago. Um, uh, but I do remember the overall dynamic because it gets pretty mind boggling. Um, uh, so during that time, you're you're you go through um, uh, hazing or whatever it's called. When you know that period in a fraternity when you are in the fraternity but you are not yet a brother. You're, I know all right? about hazing. Okay. <laughs> now hazing at MIT is a little different. Okay. So it's not it's not marine hazing and it's okay. not you know Ohio University hazing. You know it's not. I got um, you. It's more subtle. It does, it does involve some physical stuff, but never really dangerous or anything. Um, but one part of it, it stands out, which was that on Friday night, the, the freshmen would clean the, the fraternity house. And they would, this would go on from, you know, 7.30 after dinner through 3 in the morning. Uh, and during that time, you were working like a maniac under the tutelage of whoever, whatever upper brothers were overseeing it that week. 
you know, cleaning things with toothbrushes and all the rest of it. But the key thing is that it was Friday night and that you were doing it until three or four in the morning and you were physically beat and ruined for Saturday. And after all, at MIT, the weekend is, you know, at least for most students, it's a big deal. So you were giving up this in order to please the upperclassmen. And it's a kind of cognitive dissonance. It makes you much more um, desirous of getting through it and getting in. So when the time comes and you're getting in, this is where the story starts to get truly weird. Um, they take you into this room. I don't know whether it's still this way at MIT or not. It might be for all I know. Um, they take you into a room and there's a big ceremony and you're accepted, blah, blah. And, you know, they try and be dramatic. Um, but then um, a few of the upperclassmen who you happen to be friends with, every freshman is with a few of them, go off into a room and now they start telling you the truth. So they tell you that during rush week, while you were being, you know, fed steak and shown everything and, you know, et cetera, even at the beginning, other people were going in the front door, down the steps and out the back door into the alley. And they're laughing about this because they knew, because they had, they had information on basically all applicants. So they knew these kids weren't going to be, you know, for them, probably too honest. But anyway, um, and then they start telling you other things like, because we know what's best for you and you don't know anything because you're coming into this new environment, we have to make sure you wind up where you belong, which is in AE Pi. So we tap the phones throughout the building and we bug all the rooms. And what happens is, and in retrospect, I realize it was true. What happens is, you say things over the phone, maybe to your parents, maybe to a friend, maybe to a girlfriend, whatever it might be, and we listen and we hear it. And so if you say, you know, this place is really great, but nobody seems to be too interested in tennis, uh, the next morning you're getting an invitation to play tennis. If you say there's not enough emphasis on physics, the next morning a hot shit physics student is going to be with you for a while and take you to lunch and you're going to See about that. They'll give you whatever you ask for, even if it has nothing to do with the school, right? That's crazy. How did you, how do you, what do you mean this isn't interesting? You don't know it. You don't know it. And, and now comes the, the fascinating part is, is that, so you're told this, okay? So they basically told me, I, my girlfriend was at Simmons College, right? And we were quite close and I would talk to her on the phone. And also she'd come to parties at the fraternity, even when I was still a, you know, whatever you call it. A, I don't know. Plebeian, pledge, pledge, I guess. Um, and they would tell me, yeah, we, we, you know, we tapped the phone when you talked to, uh, to Nancy. And, and I would say, you what? And they would say, well, you know, we had to, because if we didn't do that, maybe SAM would have gotten you or some other place would have gotten you. And you belonged here. We knew you belonged here. <laughs> so you hear all this and you accept it. You've put in all this period of time You've been trying to get in and cognitive dissonance is at work and you just rationalize it just the way they did. For decades, people did that. Um, well, in my case, it held until the summer. And I went right through the spring, um, having a great old time, right? And I was really pretty sharp. So I, I had no problem with classes or anything like that. So I was, you know, enjoying myself, 
and getting the education I wanted, taking graduate courses, whatever. And, and, but then the summer comes and I had a job in a <laughs> insane job. My father, the lawyer got me a job in a hospital, that I guess he was lawyering for. So I go in for the first day and they put me in this little room and they say, okay, we'll be with you in a while to figure out what you're going to do. Well, they're never with me. They just paying me nothing. So I would bring books to read and, you know, put my feet up and, but I started thinking about what had happened and uh, I just went berserk. You know, I, I, that was the first, I don't know, personally powerful revelation of the kind of ugliness that's associated with, you know, the institutions around me. And I interacted with one or two other students. I went back to Rush Week. So now it's the next year and it's the next Rush Week. And so that means people, students are coming to all the houses and they're, they're to be led around the house and gone through what I went through, right? So I sat on the hood of a car outside the house and I told people what was going on. And within about three minutes, very quickly, right? There was a brawl in the street. It was two sets of people from the fraternity. One wanting to get to me, to beat the shit out of me and shut me up. The other stopping the first group because they realized that if the first group got to me and did that, the fraternity would get shut down, right? And it would be a complete disaster. So I'm sitting there watching this. <laughs> that was the first, uh, I guess, political act. It doesn't stop. If you want more of this story, it actually goes on. And it, it, it becomes even more revelatory in some ways. Yeah, no, we should. I mean, I, two things. I mean, number you one. Cut it if you don't lock it. Yeah, go ahead. No, I mean, look, I, I was wondering if you immediately attributed some of those horrible experiences you had mentioned during the summer working at the hospital and reading and reflecting. Did you immediately attribute those to bad institutions or to bad people? Because you mentioned institutions and I found that interesting. I don't know. Okay. I can't honestly say I, you know, I just know that I got more and more angry and I went up and did what I did. I mean, that sounds like something out of a fucking Hollywood movie, like some skull and bones, weird secret society shit. Like so they called the cops. They got me away from there. Um, and I quit the fraternity. That was when I announced that, you know, I'm out of here. Um, and I lined up a, a place to live with a friend off campus. But within a few days, I got a call. My father's in town. And he, he's, he wants me to come to see him at the motel where he's staying. I don't know why the hell he was there. So I go there, and it's a big setup, and it's my father, and it's also these people from the fraternity. And so they're trying to talk me into staying. Now, I can't tell this story without it sounding a bit idiosyncratic and, and you know, but in the first year during, when I was a freshman, this will give you a feeling for how competitive and how um, instrumentalist these institutions, this fraternity, I mean, it's a fucking fraternity, right, is. Um, they had picked me out uh, in, as their... Um, entree to become the president of the whole student body four years later when I was a senior. So when I'm a freshman, this is unbeknownst to me, right? Um, I only heard about it when I got in. This was already when I was a pledge in the, in the beginning. 
you know, all the way back. They had picked me out for that and they had charted a path. So in other words, there were various clubs on campus that they thought would be helpful to me gaining both the experience and the contacts to win an all-campus election as a senior. And they were pushing me through this channels. And later I found out about it. And I went along with that too in the second, in the spring, which is, you know, not the high point of my life, but I did. And then I finally broke away from it. Okay, so they've got me, so they got me in the in the, the motel with my father and with various people. So the first people that they have come in are my classmates, freshmen, telling me, oh, Michael, you can't leave. We're all friends. It was true. We were all friends. And it didn't have any effect on me. So then they brought in uh, sophomores and juniors. Um, and then things got serious. They brought in seniors and alumni. I'm not making this up, right? And, and so these are the people who actually had been in the position I was in as a freshman and had gone through the whole thing and had become big shots on campus and off campus. So they came in and my father was, was wanting me to go back, you know, cause he thought, but at this point the tide turned because these guys said to me, all right, look, Michael, we know you're right. Um, we know that what you're saying is true. It's ugly, it's dishonest, but it's for you. You're gonna be the beneficiary. Right. Like we were. The freshmen are gone. Right. The sophomores are gone. Now we've just got the people who run the show and they're saying. You know, we know what we're doing and, and you now know what we're doing, even though you're a frigging, you know, you're about to be a sophomore. But this is all for you. You're going to be the beneficiary. How can you turn your back on it at this point? <laughs> my father got nauseous and, and he just looked at me and he was shot. And, uh, so, you know, I, I quit. Um, I stayed off. The people who were in my class, the freshmen with me at AEPI, about two-thirds of them left during the course of the year pretty quickly, right? And we became Rosa Luxemburg SDS, um, which became a very important movement apparatus, I suppose you could say, on campus in Cambridge. Um, so that's sort of interesting. Um, but the reality is that, you know, not many people did that. And it, so, which tells you something about the power of, of, of the dynamics and the being sucked in and the being a beneficiary and all the rest of it. Right. Uh, four years later or three years later, I did become the, I mean, there's some ironies in this also. I did become the president of the whole student body but not the way they expected, right? I mean, I ran with a platform that, you know, no more war research, a $100,000 indemnity to the Black Panther Party, no more grades, open admissions, open sharing of, of scientific resources with other schools in the area and on and on. Uh, but I won. And so that's, that was sort of an irony. I'll give you one last element, which sort of ties it together in a sense. One of the first things that I did now as the, you know, the president of the entire student body, not the senior class, but everything, um, was you get to give a, a talk to the incoming freshmen. And what happens is the president of the university gives a talk, Howard Johnson was his name, and then I give a talk as the president of the whole student body. 
And they all were worried about what, I mean, they campaigned against me. The administration actually campaigned for the other candidates. They, they knew it was a disaster, but they didn't know how much of a disaster. So that, that speech was, you know, incredibly militant and just outrageously aggressive. You couldn't, you, but it was also coherent. I mean, I was a good speaker, so it was coherent. And, you know, I knew what I was saying. So I get off and I hop off the stage. The freshmen, of course, are all gobsmacked. They're just, they've never heard anything like this. So I get off the stage and I'm walking out and this guy walks up to me. I don't know if you ever saw the movie, um, oh, what's the name of it? With Dustin Hoffman from those days. Um, it's also got all the songs in it. I don't know. You have to see this movie. Anyway, I'm, I'm going out of the place, and this guy comes up to me, very slick, you know, you're pretty young, maybe 35 or something. And he says to me, chemicals, it matches a scene in the movie where they say plastics to the guy. So he says to me, chemicals, and I look at him like he's nuts, and I say, what? And he says, listen, uh, I'd like you to come with me. I said, what are you talking about? And he said, I want you to come with me to Germany. We will employ you right away. We will make you a vice president. And the, you know, so he decided this guy can talk. This guy can think. He's got, um, you know, he's aggressive. I want him. The astounding part is that he thought he would get me. He just heard somebody, you know, demolish capitalism as the as the scourge of the planet and the scourge of MIT. And he heard me, and yet he comes up to me and he's so fucking confident that he thought he could walk off with me. That blew my mind, right? That they were that confident, that they were that sure of themselves and that confident in, in that process, that dynamic. Yeah. Um, this is all wild MIT as hell. Go on, the stories that MIT go on and on. I mean, there are lots of them. Um, it makes me want to believe in the skull and bones and uh, secret societies around the world. <laughs> MIT had one. Um, oh, they called, did? Yeah, it's called Osiris. And there's a rule. The rule is these guys obey rules. They're morons in that sense. So the rule was that the person who won the, and became the president of the whole student body becomes a member of Osiris, along with the president of the university, the, you know, the, the, I don't know, the head of the thing and three people, three students who they pick, who are their picks to go their way, et cetera, et cetera. But I was in automatically. So, you know, of course I told the whole campus what was going on and that was another, you know, but they were stupid enough to, to, to have me be in it. Right. That is all wild to me. I did. I mean, I knew some of your history from the university. I didn't know that. Now, how did you end up, what does this look like over time, say, outside of the, like, internal weird university dynamics? What is the activism? Uh, oh. What, yeah, what does the activism start to I look like during uh, that time? Again, this is a long time ago, and my memory is really, was bad when it was good. Now it's, now it's worse, <laughs> right? Um, but. Um, no one's going to fact check you. They couldn't. Um, uh, I took a class with Chomsky. Chomsky was at MIT, and he was teaching um, 
something called the Responsibility of Intellectuals, which was named for a famous piece that he wrote. And uh, I took that class. I can tell you infinite stories about him also because we became good friends. But that was certainly very politicizing. Um, And I was also seeing what's going on in the world. Uh, The first big event, we did what was called, that I was intimately involved with doing, so to speak, was um, a sanctuary for a soldier like yourself. In other words, uh, that was something that was done in those days. Uh, People would go AWOL and they would look for sanctuary. And one of them came to MIT, or it was arranged by the the local, um, uh, the, the then version of the veterans groups that you're in now. A, a, a group like that then, who were against the war, would set it up and would arrange it. And so the guy came to MIT to be in the thing. And we had this sanctuary. It was, it was incredible. It grew very, very large. People came from all over the place. Um, Notables like, you know, Abby Hoffman or the Living Theater, um, et cetera. And, uh, you know, from out of town, because it was very big. We had about a thousand people, uh, you know, sleeping in the the student union. Oh, wow. Um, Just all over the place, it was a mess. Um, And it was, of course, very hip and everything else. Um, So that was a a big deal. did you get to talk with a lot of these GIs, Mike? Well, with him, I became friends with him. And uh, he eventually went off to jail and I, you know, continued to visit him there. Um, uh, but there weren't that many other. In other words, at a sanctuary, it was the, the guy who was in sanctuary. The one guy. Okay. Um, there weren't a lot of the other people. Okay. So, no, I didn't. Um, various occasions, I had other interactions with people, but not them. So, you know, between that, it it was very quick in those days. Um, So I went from, um, I don't know, you know, somewhat aroused. There was that fraternity nonsense, you know, somewhat eye-opening to, raging revolutionary, able to recite ideologies and everything else in months, you know, just months, uh, uh, very, very fast. Uh, that was a problem in some ways, at least for some people. Uh, uh, but it was true. And, you know, we just did all kinds of activism. Um, we organized riots. We did sit-ins. We did marches. Uh, we literally organized riots. I mean, you know, so there was all kinds of activity. Um, the weathermen were trying to recruit me and Robin. You mentioned Robin earlier in passing because you mentioned that I had done participatory economics with him. He was in, at Harvard. He was a roommate. The reason I met him is just how these things happen. I met him because he was the roommate of the kid who I told you was my good friend who was at Harvard. was from New Rochelle. So Robin was his roommate. So I met Robin that way. And Robin became political. My friend didn't, but Robin became very political. And, uh, you know, we were very close and worked together. Robin was where I encountered Marxism because he was in economics. He got to it first. And so one day um, I said to him, he was down at MIT visiting, and uh, 
I think we had just had a meeting of RLSDS because we were already radical, but not highly educated. And I just said to Robin, come on, teach me. And so, you know, we sat for a few hours in a room uh, at MIT in the student union, and he taught me Marxism. Uh, and uh, to this day, I think that um, you didn't need much more to understand it. Uh, you know, it was, it was conveyable uh, that way. When I later encountered people conveying it in hieroglyphics, I just thought, how ridiculous. Um, but he was very good at it. Uh, anyway, so there's other well, sorts of stories. Yeah. Yeah, no, we, we, I don't want to get into all of them today. We, we probably could. I mean, I look, I think one of the things that interests me from that period is, I mean, I've heard this story before from other folks we've talked about, you know, or talked with on the program. Yeah, you know, people very quickly going from, you know, not being engaged to then being a revolutionary within a year, or, you know, whatever it may be. It's, you said 69 when you left the university. Um, what do you want to talk about? I was thrown out. Okay. Why were you <laughs> thrown out of the university? As the student body well, president. This is also oddly MIT. Yeah, as the student body president. When I won, the guy who was the um, provost at the time, a big shot, he was a science advisor to Kennedy. Um, he came over to my office, not me to his. He came to my office, sort of ludicrous. He comes in, I sit down, we're talking, we're chatting. And at the end, he says to me, look, Michael, I want you to understand something. Uh, whatever happens, we're not going to throw you out. And then he qualifies it. He said, because I was already, you know, over, they had not seen anything like what was going on, right? So he said, um, we won't throw you out um, unless you do something really crazy. I mean, you know, if you burn down your room or if you burn down a building, we're going to have to throw you out. But short of, of that kind, that kind of scale of activity, there's no way we'll throw you out. So I looked at him and I said, you will throw me out and you will have, ended, and you will have no reason for it. You will have nothing... That you, that you can literally say, I did, because you will have no idea what I've done. And so, but you will throw me out. And he just said, there's not a chance. Um, this is shortly after he invited me, like, remember that guy, Chemicals? Mm -hmm. so this guy tossed in front of my nose was um, Chappaquiddick, which is where the Kennedys are. So he said, why don't you come down to Chappaquiddick with me and meet Ted, and, you know, we'll talk about things and your future and stuff like that. I said, get out of here. Um, yeah, good thing. Huh? I said, good thing. You could have ended up in a, in a lake. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. Uh, maybe I would have ended up like Sanders and been more productive. I, I do think about it in retrospect. Hmm. Um, but I don't think I could have held off. I think I would have become a schmuck, so I didn't do it. Um, and... Uh, they did throw me out and they had nothing. Um, the first thing they had was that I was at the, at, at the scene of a demonstration where violence occurred. So in my, in my, my uh, trial for that, I said, you do realize that everybody who's tested, who's testified here was also at that trial, including the deans, you know, and the vice president over there, all of you who testified, you were also there. So what was the problem with me being there? Um, they didn't like that. But nonetheless, they found me guilty, and then they found me guilty of, of disrupting my own trial, which was, was that more aggressively, I guess. 
And then they found me for something else. I don't remember what the third thing was, but it sure as hell wasn't burning down a building. And they threw me in. That was it. Yeah. And, and uh, at MIT, so the, the court, so to speak, right, the room where the trial took place, MIT has these long corridors. And when I got there, those long corridors were totally barren. And there was a good reason. It was, it was basically to instill, it's the opposite of Harvard. At Harvard, they have these fancy rugs, and it's like a boardroom. At MIT, it's like a, um, a lab so that you will become compliant enough to do what the people at Harvard want you to do, or Yale or wherever, right? So they're the masters of the universe, but you're the informed, capable one coming out of MIT or Stanford or whatever um, who is supposed to do their bidding. And the place was a cultural wasteland because of that. Um, by the time I was thrown out, it was no longer a cultural wasteland because we had put stuff up everywhere and there was, you know, murals and things painted on the walls and everything. So when they threw me out, I had to walk back to, down the long corridor to get to the front, Massachusetts Avenue, go home. So in the course of doing that, I stopped at the bank to try and get some money out. They had already gotten rid of my account. I stopped, I walked down the corridor and there were already people whitewashing every place where there was me. Like, so I wouldn't, there'd be no history of it. They, they just tr sort of wiped it out. And what I found out a little later is that before the damn trial was even over, they called the draft board to try and get me drafted, um, to get me out of Cambridge. <laughs> I mean, that's, you know, these people play hardball. Oh right? yeah, no, it doesn't they, surprise they, me. They, You're lucky you didn't end up in the trunk of a um, car. Yeah, but they also are, um, you know, these are the genteel ones. So, you know. Yeah. So anyway, there's other stuff. Um, no, and then it was just more and more demonstrations and organizing events and all the rest of it. You mean when you got out? Well, while I was there too. I mean, and and afterwards. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so it's 1969. You're booted out of school. What What yeah. are you thinking for your future? I mean. I know the economy isn't what it is today, so there's opportunities to just make money if you need to well, make money. None of us really talked about that. There were, there, you know, I was going to be a physicist, and right. that disappeared. And that disappeared um, not because I didn't want to be a physicist or I wouldn't have been a physicist if things were different. I just couldn't do it. I couldn't. Because um, of who you would have worked for? No, because I had to do the other. I got you. Right? Um and I, I, I was pretty good. So there were people from the physics department who went to Chomsky and told him that I needed to stay because I was good and could, could succeed and do really well. And Noam even wanted me to. Um, I guess partly coming from the fact that, after all, that's what he did. You know, in other words, he, he went into linguistics mm -hmm. and he became a world-class linguist, um, actually unparalleled, um, and an unparalleled intellectual, but he retained all the politics. And I thought about it, but I didn't think about it for long because I didn't think I could withstand and, and you know, I just thought I could contribute more trying to be an activist and be radical and all the rest of it than I could um, trying to make a name for myself as a physicist and then be outspoken using that. I didn't think you could do that self-consciously. I only thought it... It might work for somebody if it sort of happened organically, and you know. Right. I, anyway, so I didn't do it. What um, would you have What would you have been working on if you were a physicist, professionally? 
quote unquote. I would have been a theoretical physicist. So it means a, a theoretical physicist is somebody who typically works in those days, you mostly worked at a university. So I would have gone to graduate school. I was already taking graduate classes when I, when I was at MIT as an undergraduate, I was taking graduate classes, but, um, you, you would finish your degree, you would get a PhD, and then you would try and get a, a, a job at a university in all likelihood. And then you would do research. And in the case of a theoretical physicist, that means you sit at a desk and think uh, with a pen, you know. But with a, as an experimental physicist, it means you would most likely work with a number of other people uh, doing experiments. Nowadays, the experiments might have a thousand people working on them. Literally, I'm not just pulling a thousand out of the air. Huge numbers of, of participants. And yet still, phys theoretical physicists still are basically thinking and, uh, and writing down what they think about. Sometimes in, in concert, but only two or three, you know. Yeah. So, but that's what you do. And, uh, you know, I would have I liked to have done that, but it's not what happened. Do you still think about that work at all? Do you still do that thinking? I no. I read a lot of popular science. It's not a field where you can, you know, stay abreast with it, seriously abreast of it half-heartedly. I mean, I know a lot that's going on and I, you know, I do sort of keep up to a degree, but not, not technically, just sort of popularly. Is there any application to the political work at all? Is there any crossover? Of a theoretical physicist's yeah, work? Anything. No, nothing. Not at all. I mean, unless you think, unless you, you put it in the form of, well, the atomic bomb had political implications. Sure. That was the work. That was the one instance of um, a gigantic, actually, there was another instance of radar. Um, radar was developed at MIT by a lot of people working in a, in a project together. And the atomic bomb, you know, was, was a ton of physicists working out in, uh, in, uh, New Mexico. Yeah. New Mexico, right. um, uh, together because it was such a gigantic task to try and solve the various problems and do the experiments and, and make it happen. So for people who would never see themselves in that kind of an institution, what is the experience like for the people who are creating this kind of technology? Like, are they, so, for instance, people see these things develop. They see stealth bombers. They see autonomous robotics that are used in battlefields and so on. And they think, you know, what is there, like, mad, evil scientists and engineers behind the scenes creating this? Or, I mean, what does that look like behind the scenes? When I was at MIT, a lot of our focus was war research at MIT. Um, they had labs there. And we had confrontations at those labs. They actually called in the army with bayonets at one point. They were so worried about it. Um, and in these labs, there was research going on. And at one point, one of us, it wasn't me. I wish it was so I could have it as something that I could remember that I did. Um, but somebody did sneak into an area and discover that a project that they said was helicopter stabilization for flying, you know, over the updrafts and stuff in the inner city for traffic coverage. I mean, this is a long time ago, helicopters, right? Mm -hmm. It was actually using gunships from Vietnam and stabilizing them so that they could shoot better at everything that moves, 
which was the was the phrase. I don't know whether you've ever heard the phrase, everything that flies on everything that moves. Yeah. I have trouble talking about some of this. Um, anyway, so that helicopter was a helicopter gunship. And, uh, you know, we made that real. But, but so they knew enough of what was going on that you had to lie. That's the important part, part to realize. In other words, they knew you had to lie. So they knew what they were doing was a problem in that sense. Um, but it wasn't much different from now. They would talk about jobs and they would talk about their rights and so on and so forth. The atomic bomb project is different. That's, right, right. That, that's a whole different ballgame. Um, because that was, you know, they were all carted off to the secret thing and they're working on the bomb. And for most of them, they were doing it um, in the belief that they were beating Hitler to the punch. Right. You know, that's what was driving them. Um, I actually um, met the guy who armed the bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima while the plane was on the ground. You know, he did the last thing and then the plane took off. He's a really nice guy. And he's, uh, and he, I'm not going to talk, he, he, he's political. Um, he, you know, he became a leftist. Um, you find actually more, in those days, for instance, at MIT, there was certainly a, a higher density of radicals and, you know, raging revolutionary types in the sciences than in the other disciplines. Hmm. And that was true in a lot of places. Um, for good reason, it's because in the sciences, there, there was less socialization on the one hand, and there was no desire for it. The, the idea was that the, the science students should be free thinking, unconstrained. Um, it doesn't matter what they think, as long as they produce the product that we want, and then we'll go decide what to do with it. Right. And so... Uh, those departments, with the exception of chemical engineering at MIT, which was a fascist beehive, I don't know why, um, those departments tended to be more, more radical, I think. And today, there's so much research and development money that goes into these disciplines to create all kinds of horrific things. I mean, good things as well. Um, yeah. What do you, th I mean, what do you think we can do with these institutions today? I mean, it seems like it's such a a large challenge to try and redirect some of the money and funding and so forth that these institutions would use to develop components for weapon systems and bombs. I and I think it might be easier now than it was then uh, in some ways, because then um, uh, the, the, first of all, the population was less aware and less political. You have to realize that um the background knowledge of a citizen now is much greater than the background knowledge of a citizen, not one of us, right, of a citizen in 1969, right? There's no comparison. And the skepticism and just sort of rejection of most, how do I put this? In, in, in those days, in the 60s, we thought, um, business people were business people to make people's lives better. Doctors were concerned only with health. Lawyers were concerned only with justice, right? Corporations were vehicles for fulfillment. You know, we, we, that's what we thought. When I went off to college, I thought these things. I mean, you don't consciously think it, but you just accept it. Everybody accepts it. The reason the 60s happened in some ways, I think, is 
we discovered this gigantic lie because of the civil rights movement in Vietnam, and we went berserk. Right? We we realized my generation, or at least parts of my generation, realized not so just different different from the fraternity on a giant scale. We realized that we had been lied to, that it was all a big lie. And we got furious. And that's why it went so quickly from nothing to absolute utter outrage, because that's what it was. And um, I think it was that. I mean, I'm no shrink. I don't know. But that's what I think was going on. Um, And then it became more deeply informed. but that, that explosion was that. And the other part of that explosion was hippies, right? Which I don't, people don't really have a very good picture of that nowadays, I don't think. But that was the same thing. The lie, I think, and a different reaction. Instead of fury, it was, get away from me with that, and I'm going to carve a different path. And the path was, you know, love and all the rest of it. Um, much of which was very healthy in many ways. Uh, uh, some of it wasn't. Sure. Uh, anyway, so, the and what's different about now, the reason you can't go from zero to 100 now, although, remarkably, the, the Black Lives Matter demonstrations have moved very quickly. And I'm a bit, I was surprised by it. Um, the speed with which it, I think, I don't know. But but in any case, what I've been saying up until that set of events was to get really massive and really militant political activism nowadays, you have to do more than what we did then. All we had to do was go into the dorm and say X, Y, and Z, not ABC. They tell you ABC, it's X, Y, and Z, and prove it, and people would start to go berserk. Nowadays, you go in with your truth, right? Your, which is truth, right? And you, you tell them and they say, yeah, so what? I know. Right. At some level, they know. Everybody knows everything nowadays. Right. It's not as if people honestly think nowadays what we thought corporations are good, you know. They're just trying to carve a way through the ugliness. Yep. So it's completely different. And what you have to do nowadays, I thought, and it's fueled my attention and my, you know, my priorities for a long time. I thought what you had to do was provide vision. In other words, you had to overcome the belief that nothing better is possible, Mm -hmm. that there is no alternative because that was what was the obstacle, not ignorance, right? Right. Ignorance wasn't the obstacle and it was easy to overcome. Um, If it wasn't for this resistance to it based upon the feeling that nothing else is possible. I don't want to listen to your truth because your truth will get me in trouble and it won't leave me any place good because nothing else is possible. Right. It's not crazy when you think about it. No, right? this is what we hear from people in the streets all the time. And, and, and it's not dumb and it's, it's perfectly sensible read. And regrettably, we don't counter it very well because we don't make a good case. Well, here's something else that is possible. Right. Here's how it would work. Here's why it would work why it wouldn't fail, why it would deliver. And here's some things we can do to reach it. And so that's what we ought to be doing. You know, we're not good at making that argument. No. Uh, I mean, how much so of that? Me, oh, go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I was going to ask how much of that has to do with previous 
left experiments, revolutions that people perceived as failing or becoming quite horrific in some cases? Um, it certainly, it certainly is part of it. You know, it's part of why the public thinks what it thinks. I mean, the public thinks there is no alternative. So why does the public think that? Partly, ostensible alternatives weren't alternatives or failed or whatever. But the other reason is because it's drummed into everybody all the time by every outlet that they encounter. It's in education, it's in media, it's everywhere. And it's just, and it's in the, the, the logic and the requirements of the institutions that we relate to, which we have to relate to in order to survive. So it's everywhere. Why leftists believe it is harder. You know, I think it's partly what you're saying. And, and some leftists, um, I guess they sort of avoid believing it, although I don't really think they do, by making believe that those failures weren't failures, that those horrors weren't horrors, etc. That's how they keep their, their revolutionary cap on without going berserk or whatever. Right. Um, so that's part of it. But I think there's another part of it is, is that nobody bothered. You know, from, from 1968 to now, I mean, this is my view. I don't know. Maybe it's wrong. But I would say that from 1968 to now, or 1965 to now, the left has, you know, 30,000 times over demonstrated the lies and the, and the um, oppressive logic and the oppressive mechanics and dynamics of the system. And we've got everybody to believe that it's powerful, it's effective, and it hurts. Uh, well, if it's powerful and it's effective and it hurts, how is that any different from there is no alternative? It basically is the same thing. In other words, a lot of the time we're feeding the obstacle that we're trying to overcome. You know, in other words, when we make the case that the system is so powerful and, and when we argue that everything that anybody does gets co-opted or gets taken over or gets crushed, we're just feeding the obstacle that's preventing us from going anywhere. Or so it seems to me. And uh, we've been, do you know, the left's been doing that for decades, decades and decades. Why? Sometimes I think it's, it's you know, you don't see it in any other realm. So in other words, you know, there's no, I'll get back to why in a second, but you don't see it elsewhere. So in other words, in the realm of making buildings, right, architects don't feed the problem. They, they figure out what the problem is and they try and overcome it, right? In the realm of sports, athletes don't bemoan that the Patriots are going to beat them or the Warriors are going to beat them, right, or whatever. They try and be better. They try and figure out what the problem is, what the obstacle is, and do better, right? They don't wallow in and moan about the other side's power over and over and over again. So why do we do that? I, I don't know. You know, I'm not sure. Part of me thinks there's a Chinese slogan from the 60s, China's no model for me just for the sake of it. But there's a slogan, dare to struggle, dare to win. It's sort of clever. And, you know, I used to hear that. And then it got to a point where I used to wonder, wait a minute, what the fuck does that mean? And I understood dare to struggle, right? Okay, take some guts, make some effort, 
Make some commitment. Dare to do it. I get that. Dare to win? What the hell does that mean? People are afraid of winning. People, people feel that, that they can't do it. That they, so I can be a radical, but talk to me about actually implementing a new society? Give me a break. I'll, I'll go back to my demonstration, right? I think that's part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I mean, people do you think they are intimidated by it? I mean, why is everybody who writes or gives talks? gravitate to now everybody is too strong a word and that's the way i talk can't help myself right but it's not everybody but why why is it the overwhelming preponderance of how people of people who write and people who talk and who are political right focus on what's wrong and the power of the system and not on what we want and how to get it um for decades and decades and decades that's Strange. It's maybe because it's easier. It may be because you're less likely to get attacked. You're more likely to be correct. You know, if you're going to write something about how bad capitalism is, you're not going to screw it up. Right. Because everybody, you know, now the fact that it doesn't matter that you did it well, because it's already been unwell, you know, 80,000 times, doesn't seem to occur to people. I don't get that. You know, and and what makes it even more incredible, I'm sorry, but you asked me, and this is something that bugs me so much. What makes it even more incredible is that if you're writing for the public, right, and, and, um, you know, people who are uneducated, while telling them that that poverty hurts isn't really communicating anything they don't know, right, or that racism hurts, or that sexism hurts. Everybody knows. Or that war hurts. Communicating to people who 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 haven't encountered it and are in circumstances where they're told the opposite all the time, something about how the system works, and something about you know why it feels the way it does and why it does what it does can have real merit, real value, yeah. right? Especially if it leads to what to do. Yeah. But then the leftists write in language that's incomprehensible to such people. Right. So, so you're left with, I mean, you're, you're writing to an audience that knows what you're writing. Right. Why do we do that? Why, you know, why do we spend so much time doing it? Well, it's almost like an intellectual commune. I mean, I think to some degree people see a really fucked up world that's dark with little hope and on the horizon and all the rest. And I think they just say, okay. I found my sort of clique of people here, you know, and I know that that's not good enough and it's not necessarily even a legitimate excuse, but I do think it's one of the reasons. Yeah, no, it is one of the reasons. It's why also, you know, I talk a lot on campuses or I did not recently, obviously, and not even a couple of years before, but I would talk a lot on campuses and sometimes I would talk to pretty large audiences and, um, you know, there wasn't a campus that I couldn't go on the campus and walk around and find all the radicals just by the way they dressed. Sure. Sure. But what is that? What is that? That's no, creating, yeah. people talk about a counterculture. Well, the counterculture in the sixties was a counterculture to the entire U S culture. Right. 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 Counterculture now in that sense seems to me to be a counterculture to the people around you who you should be trying to organize who you should be trying to talk with. And yet you're 
setting yourself apart from them, you know, you're making it hard to do what's the agenda, what ought to be the agenda. I remember one place, uh, College Park, Pennsylvania. That's the school where uh, Joe Paterno was in mm-hmm. the town. And the, and the stadium had, I don't know, 60,000 seats. The town probably had a population of 60,000. It's a small town, um, but there's all the students. And, you know, on, on the weekend, of course, everybody would turn out. The whole town would stop. Everything would stop. And it was football. And I went there to speak, and there was like 400 people or something. And um, on the way to the place, I passed a sports bar. It was a big bar, and it was, you know, sports stuff everywhere. And I looked in and looked around, and there were all these big guys in there. Big guys. Um, And I went to the talk. And before it was starting, I was talking with a bunch of people. There were a lot of people sitting there, but it just, I hadn't been introduced. I was sort of talking to the audience. And I said, you know, I passed this place on the way here. How many of you have been in there? It's an interesting place. Nobody raised their hand and they all started laughing. Mm-hmm. And I said, I don't, what, why, why is this funny? And they said, we can't go in there. Kill us, right? You know, we can't go in there. So then I thought for a minute and I said, how many of you have been to a football game? This is, I can't remember. It, it was Joe Paterno. It's, it's one of the biggest football games. Yeah, Penn State. Penn State. Mm-hmm. And uh, I said, how many of you have been to a football game? Two black guys raised their hand. I mean, I'm not making this. That was it. 400 people. If I had gone to give a talk at any other constituency on that campus, anything, right? Um, you know, I, I don't want to say something that would be offensive. I don't know what group to, to describe, you know, the knitting club, the anti-sports club, the anything that you want to name, right? The density of people in that group who would have been to a football game would have been high. Right. Because it's, it's the entire cultural life of the school. Right. Right. The leftists never been there. So then I said, I don't understand. You all want to change the world, right? Yeah. You all want to get rid of, yeah. I said, well, do you understand that the people on this campus who matter for the agenda that you have are sitting there in that sports bar? That that's who you, if you can't reach them, you can't do anything. You might as well go to the beach. Yeah. And of course, I now I, I railed at them for a while. Um, I don't know how many of them ever liked it and how many of them hated me and went home and threw darts at me, but, you know, on a picture or something, but it's true. Yeah. You know, and, and so when people tell me, well, the left hasn't gotten anywhere or hasn't gotten far before this recent period, my answer is always sort of, it's got about as far as it's tried to get, you know, it hasn't failed all that miserably that everybody thinks it. To my eyes, and this irritates people because here they are working hard and they're trying and they are, you know, and people who are my friends will get irritated when I'll say things like this or really angry uh, because they feel people are working hard and they are and they feel I'm dissing them, but I'm not dissing the work. I'm not dissing the commitment. I'm saying there's something wrong with what we're doing yeah. because, because we just not. So that's the way I feel about it. And that's. Uh, and I, you know, what's going on now, I don't know. 
you know, I, I don't know. Look, I think that there's people who are asking that question more and more now. I mean, these kind of discussions, I just saw a uh, pretty decent discussion on Jacobin's uh, YouTube channel. And it was an entire discussion with thousands of people watching that were basically asking the question, why do we, why are we always happy with losing? Why don't we ask difficult questions really? about why we're losing? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think that there's more of a maturity going on with that. I think the Bernie campaign also allowed a sort of different wave of people to come in who you wouldn't be able to recognize as leftists. You know, if you saw them somewhere, I think stuff like that helps. I'm always somewhat in between. On the one end, I understand that this is absolutely essential for organizing. On the other end, um, you know, Sergio went to the post office today and had his mask on and had some lady flip him off. <laughs> some other guy. Some gave, lady do what? Pull some him lady off? flipped him off and some other guy told him to go fuck himself because he had his mask on. Yeah, and no doubt they'll be at the local sport, sports bar this weekend. So. I, and I grew up, see, my thing is I always find myself somewhere in between this because I grew up in a very working class atmosphere in the Rust Belt around ordinary people. My only exposure to this whole left world was through Iraq veterans against the war and then having these opportunities to go speak, you giving me an opportunity to write, which opened the door for all kinds of other opportunities, which put me in contact with left wing intellectuals and all the rest. But I mean, if Sergio and I walk out our door we're talking to the people who are going to football games and all the rest because that's everyone who lives around us. I think that there's some, the pandemic I think heightens this frustration, but I do think there's a, a legitimate frustration though. It's not helpful on behalf of left activists and organizers who interact enough with enough people who just make you want to rip your hair out of your head and it, it drives you nuts. I mean, we're seeing it with the pandemic, you know, just something very simple like, you know, uh, talking to somebody about putting a face mask on. It puts you in a difficult situation. So, for instance, locally, the liberal college-educated class of people, people leftists might call yuppies or so on, they actually, for obvious reasons, are taking access to information, education levels, are taking this much more seriously than, say, a lot of the poor and working class people that we would want to connect with who are piled into bars for the last four months and could give a shit less. Um, it adds layers of complexity. I, I agree with you. I mean, generally I agree with you. I think probably Sergio, other people I know would agree with you that this, this has been our experience on the left. Um, but this, this context of the pandemic has it's, it's heightened some of that. It's made it, it's made it, you know, I think even more difficult. Because now you could like just being able to have like a basic conversation with people that we know who are like, hey, you should put the mask on. And it's like, oh, you buy into that kind of fucking bullshit. And it's like, ow, you know. <laughs> Tell me whether the following story in any way applies. Okay. Um, so I think part of that is anti what I call coordinator class values. Mm. In other words, the, the coordinator class has the mask. We're not doing that. But there's another possibility, which I want to ask you about, uh, from a story back when I was, again, in college. I was, uh, I think, a junior or a senior, and I was living in Somerville in an apartment uh, with three roommates, and uh, Robin was one of them. And there were these local kids, working class kids in the area. It was a working class neighborhood. And we used to play football, football with them and talk to them and stuff. And um, 
we had a i actually had a vw bus um you know the, the oh yeah um so um one day we go out and we find in the vw bus um that they've been smoking in it um glue and so we looked into it and um glue or sniffing glue sorry they've been sniffing glue and and so we look into it and it, it's horrendous right i mean basically each sniff you take you're killing brain cells i mean it's not like addictive dangerous it's like shooting yourself in the head dangerous right so it's really bad so we talked about it to each other and we're trying to figure out what we're going to say to them because we like these kids and we don't want them destroying themselves so we got them in the in our in the apartment which wasn't infrequent you know but but they're in there and we start talking about it and they say yeah they smoke it or they sniff it and we say why and they say why not and we say, well, it's so dangerous. And they just sort of look at us like stupid. And um, and we say, well, why? And one of them says, look, I'm going to be a bus boy, a bag boy at the at the local food store, you know, or I'm going to be, and then they list some other things, right? And I don't need my brain. And sniffing glue. Let's me escape for a while, and it lets me feel good for a while. And yeah, I know, I know what you're saying, but what difference does it make? Right. And so we were floored, and we went and thought about it. And actually, I came up with a a way. And I'm 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 sort of I suppose you could say. Um pleased that I thought of it, not so proud that I did it. Um, it's a bill, it's a little like the fraternity again. So now we're the upper class brothers who know what's going on. And they're the freshmen who don't know what's going on. And you got to figure out how to get them to do what you want them to do. So I figured out how to get them to stop sniffing glue. I told them it would make them impotent. Totally made it up. I had no idea. Right. And they quit. Right, right. Because that mattered. That mattered. Right. But having their brain turned to mush didn't matter. Right. In fact, it wasn't even seen as a cost. Sure. Because they didn't need it. And maybe if it was made to mush, they wouldn't be so depressed. Right. Oh, no, all that makes sense. Yeah. So so now, you know, I sort of wonder, maybe the the virus is less scary to some people than to other people. Oh no! Oh, because they're yeah. all. I don't mean because they don't believe it's real. No, of course, right? because they, yeah. What do they got to lose? Of course, no. Yeah. We know. I mean, most of the people around in our city are like that's the that's the whole that's everything. It's like we're fucked anyway. Coal fired power plant. I might kill myself. Drug and alcohol addiction, pills, whatever the fuck. So for them, it's like yeah, okay, no mask, and then I might get sick. Who gives a fuck? Yeah, um, because I can go to the bar and enjoy myself. Yeah. Yeah, and, and it's and like the I limited thing I have. I'm in uh, jail or something. No, 100%, 100%. I think one of the way, I mean, to move this into a, a how we could positively, I think, react to this or deal with it, I think this is why creating culture is so important. I mean, if we know that it's disproportionately men that are doing this, that women are, are wearing a mask at whatever rate higher than men are doing this. I mean, I think well, that there's... I think that is. 
Well, because you want to be tough because you got that hyper masculinity. No, in not the men. Why are the women wearing it? Well, I think because they have more sense, generally speaking. They're not as influenced by that whole, you know, do you want to be seen as a, as a sissy? Yeah. I mean, I don't know too many women who are worried about that. The kids. Yeah. Yeah. Kids, kids as well. But I think if you, if you can create like some kind of a cultural, the more you can create a cultural norm that this is not cool. I think that that's, that's like the key to what you need to do. I mean, I think a lot of stuff hinges on that. I mean, just like basic peer pressure. Like, do you want to be seen with the, you know, this group of, folks that that's like the cool hip thing to do is to wear a mask and you know or do you want to be seen as this other group of people that's not i don't know i mean it would seem to me that culture has a lot to do with that and the socialization process who people are socializing with yeah i agree and it's uh it's not obvious how you just do it but yeah uh, you know it 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 is it is part of the process, creating a, a left that um, empowers people and that makes people feel positive about themselves and their prospects is not easy. Um, but it is essential because absent that, um, there's no reason to stay in the left. It's too boring and too tedious and too obnoxious to stay in unless it, you know, it has those virtues. Uh, yeah, uh, I think that those virtues and I think you have to create a culture that's something that people want to be a part of. And if the culture is boring and tedious and backstabbing and sniping at each other and not having any fun, then, I mean, I don't see why people would want to, I mean, and there's a balance as we know. Especially if it's all that, right? Yeah. And they have no idea what it's trying to win. Right. (laughs) Why why am I in here again? What is it that we're trying to win? I know. Pete? Oh, the candidates say they're all for peace. Why are you any more for peace than they're for peace? Yeah. Right? No, it's a major challenge. Yeah. yeah. Um, um, but we don't, but but it's a challenge that may be able to be dealt with if people were trying to deal with it more. Yeah. Right? We're, we're trying to deal almost with challenges that are not there or are relatively modest. I mean, look, the Black Lives Matter thing didn't go from quiescent to upsurge all over the place because people read a um, sophisticated argument about racism. Mm-hmm. That's just that didn't happen. Nobody in their right mind thinks that's what happened. Right. Right. So whatever it is that did happen um, is crucial, and I think what happens is hope. In other words, um, okay, the police kill a person, black person. The there's an outpouring because because it's so atrocious that there's a quick outpouring before cynicism could prevent it. So something happens, and then uh, that provides a little bit of a glimmer that maybe something might happen here, and so more people. And as the number grows, all of a sudden there's hope that you might accomplish something, that you might defund the police, that you might change the whole apparatus. Not capitalism, it hasn't gotten there yet. Or or even racism, systemic racism. I don't think it's 
it's there yet, all right? In other words, it, people are talking about it, but I don't think people are joining it because they expect it's gonna overthrow racism. Mm -hmm. But they do think it might change their daily lives via doing something about the police. And that hope, which makes participating functional, you know, it makes it the possibility that it will accomplish something becomes crucial. To it just overcomes the cynicism, and it and it, you know, the first time I thought this was all the way back in 1968. You, you know about May of 68 in France. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it goes from nothing. France was quiescent, nothing particularly going on, right? No more than any place else for sure. To incredible to the whole country exploding to ideas going through the roof everything being challenged um and nato tanks getting ready to roll to put it down and it's true um well, what happened okay so the orthodox marxist says they all read marx it's obviously ridiculous right the 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 marx wisdom did not increase an iota, right? There was there was no sudden input of analysis of capitalism. That had nothing to do with it. Nothing, zero, right? I mean, there's nothing bad about that. But to say that that's what caused May of '68 in France is just ridiculous. What caused it? First of all, the event started because the school um, changed the parietal norms about who could visit the dorms. Um, and then there was this big demonstration about that. Why? Because it was something that you thought maybe you could affect, right? So it wasn't that big a deal, but it mattered. It affected people's lives, and maybe you could affect it. So people went out and protested, and they got repressed. And the repression, like cops killing people, similar, caused a much bigger upsurge. And then it just went ballistic. Um, uh, and then why did it stop? Hope dissipated, I think. It wasn't because people had become smart and then became stupid. That's ridiculous. Right. Right? right. Totally ridiculous. It's because there was hope which spurred the involvement, but it couldn't be sustained. Things started to bog down. Things started to, um, you know, hope began to dissipate and then it slows down. Yeah. And that's what I think happened. That's what I fear happening now. I'm, I'm yeah. already astounded at how long it's gone on and how deep it's gone and how much it's accomplished also. I mean, God, I, I watch sports TV, you know, t TV uh, talk shows with these sports commentators. Mm -hmm. And they're talking about racism and about um, protests and stuff in ways that six months ago, half the left wouldn't have done. Yeah. So it's incredible. Um, but if it doesn't broaden and it doesn't uh, um, start winning um, and, and then solidifying, that's dangerous. And that's what happened to us in the 60s. We didn't solidify into much of anything. I well shit I hate to end on this note because I was <laughs> I was <laughs> shit my response wasn't going to be too much more positive. Look, I think uh, the way that my my friend Rob Johnson puts it I think is it was well I'm, I'm sort of paraphrasing but I remember us talking right when the primaries were about to kick off and he was like we're about to find out what a sort of hodgepodge hipster left with 
low union dense density, but he went on this whole list. Like we're about to find out what that's capable of doing in a presidential campaign. And I think we saw it. And I think it's, it's sort of the same now where I think we're seeing what this to me is sort of the, what we could accomplish is like the maximum of what you could accomplish with sort of radical movements right now. Because in order to bring in liberal groups, in order to bring in different NGOs, bring in different unions, the left itself has to have organizations and institutions. And there are, it doesn't seem clear to me that we have the same kind of organizations and institutions um, that you would need to be able to carry this work on, to deepen it, to broaden it, and then also to institutionalize it through laws, through politics, through you know, alternative institutions, neighborhood groups, alternative whatever you wanted to do. Um, that's, that's, it seems to me what if, to be, what if, what if the evictions now start escalating and people begin to think, no, we're not leaving our homes. And so they begin occupying their homes and they begin, um, in with groups defending their homes. And then they begin to think in this apartment buildings, let's say, right. And so you're getting evicted because you're, you rent an apartment and there's lots of people who rent apartments. Um, and then they begin thinking, wait a minute, why can't we begin take over this mutual aid um, dynamic and start um, sharing uh, certain things and maybe even start um, sharing um, uh, lessons and experiences and education and so on. And why can't we, and in that way, form, uh, you know, tenants, tenants unions or tenants assemblies and so on. And if that happens, it could spread to other domains. I mean, that's where I think it might start if, it, if it's going to start. Um, that's where, I mean, that's where our local organizing group is focusing its energy. Yeah, and it makes sense. And it, but if it worked, those people all work. Right. And so if the experience of working together collectively and of beginning to fight to get together collectively to protect, you know, your your dwelling, I mean, your home, after all, um, starts to succeed, uh, then why can't it spread to other domains? And, it, you know, if that happens, I think there is real potential in what's going on. Um, I, you know, I. Where does the blame, if we want to place blame, and it's not to shame anybody, right? But it's to identify where things have to be better. Right. That's what it ought to be for always, you know, trying to place blame. We lost the game tonight. Why'd we lose? Well, so-and-so didn't, you know, it's not to shame the guy. Right. It's to change it. Okay. So why, um, are working people so hostile to the left? What are we going to What are we going to identify as the cause of that? Well, I think it's forty years of the of the left not not being able to communicate with working people, and not doing so, and not really understanding their circumstances and lives, and not realizing that oftentimes we come across as their worst enemy, not their biggest friend because we seem just like the managers and the doctors and the lawyers they can't stand. And we're just oblivious to all of that. And we have been for 40 or 50 years. So it's not a surprise that we've handed, you know, that my generation has handed the current generation 
a mess to overcome. And I apologize. And it really is our fault, I think. I mean, if, you know, people in my generation who hear me say this go ballistic um, because they don't, you know, but it's true, right? We had 40 years to do better and we didn't. Okay, so now somebody else has to do better. Um, yeah. So. Uh, we're trying. Now, now I'll say something that is similar, but is going to get me in trouble. Why did, why did Sanders lose because of black votes twice? Mm. Right? Where, where, what caused that? Right? Um, blaming it on Sanders, maybe he could have done better. I'm not going to deny that for a minute. You know, sure he could have done better, but I don't think that's the issue. No. I think it's, it's the organizing in the black communities um, was inadequate at getting to um, the, the, some of the roots of the problems and um, some of the attributes of fighting those problems. And as a result, um, a subset of people were not even positive about Sanders. Another subset were positive about him, but thought he couldn't win. Right. Right. Why couldn't he win? Well, and they may have been right. I don't know. Right. How do we know? Sure. But if he if they couldn't, it's partly because of the organizing. Yep. Again. Right. Yep. So if we're in trouble and we are. It's because we've done things wrong and we better look and see what those errors are. If they're not the ones that I'm saying, OK, fine. Then there's something else that we have to correct. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I tend to agree with the ones that you're mentioning. I mean, Sergio's shaking his head yes over here. And, you know, I mean, both of us come from that background. So yeah. we see it. Um, no, the question about organizing is the question. I mean, I'm tired of hearing the kind of like analysis about whether or not he should have made one more speech in Mississippi or if he would have had a different kind of social media campaign that, yeah, no, that's all absurd. I mean, look, and to put this in real terms for people who are listening locally and regionally, we live in one of the most diverse parts of Indiana, uh, outside of Indianapolis, Northwest Indiana, stretching from the Southeast side of Chicago to South Bend across the lakeshore is by far the most diverse area in the state. I can name one or two um, black left-wing political organizations. Both of them are under the Black Lives Matter banner uh, and both are relatively small. And the one exists in Gary, Indiana, and the other exists in South Bend. You know, outside of those, you know, we have difficult conversations with uh, different leftists, black thinkers, other people who have said, <clears throat> why don't you, you know, partner with black organizations? And we ask them which organizations to uh, partner with. Um, this was the case in Chicago. I bring this up consistently because it was one of the first times that I saw this as a symbol of maybe things to come. And that was the 2015, uh, I know you and I have talked about this off air, but the 2015 may mayoral race in Chicago between Chewy Garcia and Rahm Emanuel. And every, every ward in Chicago that had a black plurality except for one went for Rahm Emanuel. Every ward in Chicago that had a Hispanic Latino plurality went for Chuy Garcia. Uh, that played out again in the 2016 primaries. And then it played out again in the 2020 primaries, you know, where we, I mean, you see in places like Nevada or across the country that there were a lot more organized Latino, Hispanic, left-wing progressive groups uh, than there are black 
left-wing progressive groups that are organized, established that you could create partnerships with, build coalitions with. A big challenge we face uh, in our efforts is determining how much, how many of our efforts or how much of our efforts should go toward trying to build our own organization and how much should just simply be us giving skills, knowledge, assistance, aid to people in the city and the region who might want to create their own organizations um, with their own aims, hopefully with enough overlap. But this is a constant challenge that we face. I don't mean to go too far down this road because I've already taken 90 minutes of your time, which was 30 minutes more than I expected and made you talk about all kinds of shit that you probably haven't talked about in a long time. I found it useful though. I mean, I find it very useful. Yeah. I mean, I think people too, you know, they encounter these to varying degrees. People encounter these different dynamics in whatever institution they're in. So I think hearing about that is, is important. And I think hearing from that, you know, we just had Leslie Kagan on the program a couple days ago and, uh, I know I said this to you the other day and it's somewhat morbid, but I mean, the reality is, is there's, a, we've got to hear these stories, these experiences. I think it's so important. I mean, I think it's so important because, you know, there won't, there'll be come a time in the near future when there's not too many people to pull on who actually lived through that time. So I appreciate it. And All we'll, right. We'll, we'll keep doing uh, it. If it's, if it's useful, I'm happy that it was useful. If it's not, you know, there's probably a wastebasket in the corner. You can just chuck it. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sergio said we'll throw it away. <laughs> You've been watching Park Media. I'm your host today, Vince Emanuele, and we'll talk to you soon. Hey, thank you for watching and listening. If you think this program is worth a pack of cigarettes or a cheeseburger, you could become a Patreon for as little as $3 a month. The link is available at our website, parkmedia.org. That's P-A-R-C Media. Org. Make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel below. Also, you could find us on Instagram at Park Media, Facebook at Politics, Art, Roots, Culture, and you could find me on Twitter at Vince Emanuele.